Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Thanks for spending part of your day or night with us. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts from, just so we know it's helpful to you in your writer's journey. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it. And now, on to the podcast. Today on the show is a lit manager and producer who has been a story analyst at CAA, an assistant at the Gotham Group, and head of the story department at Resolution before being promoted to agent. He formed his own management and production company, Heretic Literary Management, before joining Bellevue Productions, where he currently reps a roster of working and up-and-coming writers and filmmakers, Jeff Portnoy. Thanks for coming back on again, Jeff. It's, it's been a while since you've been on, actually. Yeah, it's great to be back. It, it has been a while, but I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me I'm back on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before we uh, jumped on, that you've been actually highly requested because we've had John on a number of times, and uh, Kate Sharp was, was just on the show. And yeah, I've gotten multiple requests. Well, what about Jeff Portnoy? And, and you've had, you were on the show before, but it was years ago. So we're, and if you want to listen to that, you can go. You can find it on our website, scriptsandscribes.com. But uh, you've done a, just a tremendous job just in the past few years uh, working over at Bellevue, and I'd love to get into that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we've had a, it's been a good run at Bellevue. We've we've done a lot. Uh, we have a lot of great uh, writers and uh, writer directors, and it's been you know a successful run. A lot of a lot of clients on the blacklist. A lot of clients staffed, and and also uh, clients setting up pilots and features at studios and networks so it's been great and you know we're, we're, we're we can't complain um you know we it was a bumpy been a bumpy year and a half with uh working rule 23 and now covid19 but you know the business development marches time marches on so to speak yeah the train train still rolls it might slow down or hit some bumps but it's still going yeah luckily for for writers and the people who represent them uh it could be you know historically writing's been done remotely anyway so we're we got lucky in that regard uh, you know unfortunately a lot of people in physical production and post-production are hit got hit really hard by this but um you know, the I think writing and develop the writers and development hit got hit the least. Um, you know, so we're grateful for that, obviously. But hopefully, this will you know they'll have a handle on this, and we'll be back uh, moving forward soon. Now, for those who haven't listened to the previous podcast, and this is their introduction to Jeff Portnoy, literary manager, can you give us the elevator pitch of Jeff Portnoy and how you came to be a lit manager, and specifically a lit manager at Bellevue? Sure. Yeah. The elevator pitch in a, in a, is basically I growing up, I was obsessed with movies and I was uh, in particular was obsessed with with auteur directors. You know, back then it was, you know, Scorsese and uh, Coppola and Lynch and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I thought I wanted to be a director, went to film school, got my bachelor's degree in film production. In, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then moved out to LA. And I think I, the first two years in LA was kind of an eye opener for me. And, and I started to uh, the the kind of dream started to kind of evolve from you know being a writer, director, auteur, just just to being a writer. And and as that happened, I started taking uh, classes at UCLA Extension for screenwriting. I did their certificate program, and um, I came out of that wanting just to be a writer. And I started working as a freelance story analyst. Uh, otherwise known as a reader, um, to make money and to learn. It was the best job that, that would do both at the same time. Uh, and that led me to getting a job at Creative Artist Agency as a, first as a part-time reader, and then eventually I got promoted to being a full-time salaried staff reader. I was there for, all, when all was said and done, probably a little under six years. And um, during that time, I got a little taste of development. And when I what I mean by that is occasionally a, a client, a writer client of, at the agency would want more than just a uh, one page of comments and a, and a log line on their script. They'd want like development notes. And I would volunteer for those assignments. And when you did that and you wrote five to 10 pages of development notes for a writer, typically they would call you and they would thank you. And they, sometimes you discuss the notes. You would also get the next draft of the script and you would see it develop and see it hopefully improve. So, and I, having had a, having had a taste of writing and a taste of development, I eventually decided um, that I enjoyed development more and I was better at development. Once I had that revelation, I then, it, the dream evolved once again, and it went from being wanting to be a writer to wanting to work with writers in some capacity, whether it be as a manager or as a you know creative executive at a production company or studio. Uh, that's what led me to leave CA and go work at the Gotham Group, where I worked as an assistant for about a year and a half, and I got my feet wet in the management world, learned about management, and then 
Jeff Berg opened the Resolution Talent Agency, uh, which was a short-lived endeavor, only lasted two years, but I, they brought me over there. And I look at kind of Gotham as kind of like the beginner's class on representation. And then Re- Resolution was like the master's class. I was there for about a year and a half of its two-year uh, tenure uh, or existence. And then when Resolution closed, uh, there was a few writers that I had discovered and brought into the agency. And they didn't. They were going with their agents wherever their agents were going to go. Um, and I decided to start managing them. And I, so I started with, you know, a handful of clients in 2015 and did about a year on my own and then joined up with John Zazerny, hired me to come over to Bellevue. And I've been with him ever since. Uh, and I love working with writers. I have a, you know, as a, a former aspiring writer and someone who has, comes from a creative place, I love to work with writers developing their, their material. That's my, I, we do a lot of things. Managers do a lot of things. But the thing I enjoy the most is, reading an outline, reading a beat sheet, reading a first draft of a script, just getting on the phone or in a room with the writer and just kind of being in their corner in the trenches. How can we solve this problem? How can we make it the script better? How can we solve the, these problems with the story? It's just it, each story is completely different. It's like a Rubik's cube and it's just a challenge. And that's what I get the most enjoyment out of. Of course, we do a lot of other stuff, um, which I'm happy to talk about, but that's probably why I chose to do be a manager and not some, do something else because I really enjoyed working with the writers closely. Leapfrogging from there and, and delving more into what you do as a manager, what maybe you can explain to uh, some of those uh, uh, newer writers out there who may not sort of have a grasp of the difference between an agent and a manager. Uh, what is it that, that a manager does for their writer and filmmaker clients? Specifically writers, I mean, there's obviously I, I, more I, development going on in that process. I mean, when it, when it comes to the comparisons between a manager and agent, I think, uh, you know, the it's it's different. It's you kind of judge it on a case by case basis. Every agent and every manager chooses what percentage of their time they want to dedicate to the creative stuff and what percentage of their time they want to dedicate to the business stuff. So you do have agents who are out there who are very have a lot of creative input into their client scripts. They've chosen to to have that type of makeup in their on their their day how much time they want to dedicate of every day. And then you're going to have some managers who are dedicating a lot, most of their time to the business aspects of, of, of the, you know, working with writers and, and whatnot. Um, uh, you know, however, historically the managers are, you know, tend to be a little bit more creatively involved with their clients and with development and agents tend to be a little historically again with, there's obviously a lot of exceptions, but historically agents are a little more, it's 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 business meaning scripts ready and then you hand it to the agent and then they pick up the phone they're making submissions they're putting the script they're putting the writer up for jobs for open writing assignments staffing assignments um so i I think every manager and agent that's the great thing about our business is you kind of just have the freedom to choose what you want who you want to be what like you know makeup of your time is going to be like you know um for me it's you know the man i i feel like it's definitely probably 75 percent of the time is development talking to writers about their scripts and their beat sheets and vetting their ideas and trying to find ideas and and the creative stuff and like 25 percent probably falls into the category of like business um getting the you know script out to producers and sell, get taking it out to buyers and putting them up for jobs and and i think agents is you know for the most part is probably you flip that it's probably 75 percent is business and but they are you know 25 percent creative of course when they get a client script comes in they're gonna have some thoughts and they're gonna have notes and stuff it's just like not the, the lion's share of what they do um but like i said you have exceptions and there's uh, you know some managers who operate like agents and some agents who operate like managers but for the most part i'd say that 75 25 is a good general like ratio that most of the business kind of follows you know I, I was just on a call yesterday with a couple of agents and we were talking we had just read a client script uh, a client I share with them and they had a lot of great notes um, you know however we had the writer and I had worked for you know many many months together before handing them the script so they're coming in for kind of like the last like you know 25 yards to the to the touchdown and I was there from from the beginning but then once the script's ready we kind of flip that ratio on the business side they're going to do 75 percent of kind of like spearheading this taking the script out to, to try to sell it or set it up or get it packaged and i'm there for I'll, I'll of course make some submissions as well i have a lot of contacts i have a big network of, of contacts in the business so i'm going to be there kind of on the team but i'm more kind of you know supplementary to the agent so 
that's that's kind of I think when when you're trying to choose which of the whether you want to be an agent or manager, it's it's definitely typically the choice is has a lot to do with how creatively involved you want to be. How much do you do you want to how much time do you want to spend on the creative stuff and the business stuff? And if you re, if you and how, do you enjoy the creative part of it? I really enjoyed it, and I wanted to spend more time there. So management was my way. If you don't really enjoy, it, you don't want to spend time in it. I think it's, but you love working with writers and directors and you love the business, you love the industry, then maybe agency is your thing. They're very closely, you know, there's definitely some crossover between the two for sure. You'd mentioned that every manager and every agent is different in terms of how much time they spend in individual aspects of representation, whether it's the business side, the creative development side, that sort of thing. For you personally, what is the most important part of your job would you say i mean what is it that that you feel is your biggest contribution to that writer's career by far my biggest contribution to my clients is uh helping them vet ideas whether it's their, one of their ideas or their or my ideas we, we have to work together to find a, a concept that's going to stand out um you know in the marketplace so concept, um, you know, helping them work on ideas and come up with ideas. And then and then definitely is the next thing is just helping them with execution. They're they're talented. They're going to write a great script. I'm going to be a fresh, uh, you know, objective kind of set of eyes on their script to give them some objective feedback about the script. And um, so definitely it's development. It's, it's concept and execution uh, development. That's that's the most uh, place where I'll be the most helpful, where I spend the most time, and and then there's a lot of other things, you know. Once the, once we have a script where we feel is in a really good place, you know, if they don't have an agent, that's another big part of my job is introducing them uh, and trying to get them an agent. Um, I, I also we also help find our clients uh, ater- entertainment attorneys. We help, you know, when we take with or without agents, we definitely also, you know, share our clients' materials with producers and. And um, we try to, you know, get them out there, get them meeting, taking meetings and get them on the blacklist, get them exposure. Um, we, you know, business, there's lots of business stuff that we do helping with, you know, helping with, you know, negotiating deals and, um, you know, working with agents and attorneys to negotiate deal points and do option agreements and purchase agreements and attachment agreements, all that stuff. There's a huge, mis- a huge a bucket that's just miscellaneous business stuff for sure. Um, but definitely concept coming up with an idea and then the execution. That's the lion's share of what it, it what it is. Everything else after that, if we can nail those two things, is you, you know fairly relatively easy, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's what I would say is is what I'm what I it, my biggest contribution to my clients is definitely helping them go through a list of 20 ideas and picking the one out that's really going to stand out when I when I have to call people and pitch the idea. Or when they read the log line, we got to have something that really pops. So helping them lock in on that idea, and then helping them, you know, figure out, break the idea, like outline, beat sheet, outline, treatment, screenplay. That's that's the the lion's share of kind of what I'm doing. There are a handful of of companies like Bellevue, you and and John Zazerny that tend to have multiple uh, writers scripts on the list. That's not to say that other writers of other managers don't have scripts on there from time to time, but you guys seem to consistently have multiple scripts on there every single year. And I just wanted to talk to you about that in terms of why do you think you guys have the success with getting your clients on the blacklist as much as you do? And how does it affect your clients in terms of their visibility or their uh, desirability in terms of, of getting read and, 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 procuring work well to answer the first part of the question i think you know one of the keys you know key kind of ingredients to getting a script on the blacklist is writing uh as a writer writing a script that that has a really bold idea or unique idea or is about a is a true story about a person who we don't know a lot about and and it's not about necessarily selling it it's not about writing something that you think will sell or you know will sell or writing something that there's a market for it's writing you're writing something that you think executives in the in the industry when they hear the logline will be excited to read it it's not about whether their companies necessarily will, will be interested in making those films or whether the studios 
would be interested in networks, interested in making those. Um, it's really about whether people around uh, Hollywood will be interested in reading them. And the best example of that was probably um, last year I, I had a client, uh, I should say I have a client named Nicholas Curcio who wrote a feature screenplay about Baron Trump, about a, you know, hmm. young Baron Trump discovering when his father decides to run for president, he sets out on a campaign to sabotage his father and his father's campaign. And, um, you know, so he's diametrically opposed to his father's politics and ideology and sets out on this journey. It's like a young adult kind of coming of age story, but there are him and his friends are setting out on this journey to like take his father down. And um, we knew when we came up with the idea that it was not, there was no world where it, the movie probably ever got financed or produced. But we knew that when people heard that logline, they were, you know, regardless of where they worked and what type of material their companies produced, they would perk up and be like, holy shit, that's, that's refreshing. I haven't, I don't hear that logline. That's like a one in a million logline. Whereas when they're producing something and they're looking for a writer, they're getting dozens and dozens of scripts that, that are in the same space as samples for the assignments they're working on or they're appointed to. So they're kind of like mired down in all these samples that are very similar. You know, they're getting all these, they have, let's say an executive has a writing assignment for a big action film at the studio. They're going to get dozens and dozens and dozens of scripts that kind of live in that same space. And they're, and they're just kind of inundated with those and they're bored of those. And then they get a call from us about this Baron Trump thing. And it's, it's, you know, it's refreshing and it kind of like they laugh out loud when they hear the log line, they want to read it and then they, they remember it. And when they, and then they vote for it on the blacklist and then they meet with the writer and they think of, they consider the writer for other assignments they may have, but they're not going to, no one ever talked to us about wanting to make the Baron Trump script, but they loved, they, they laughed out loud and were like, I want to meet this guy. So we're, John and I are both, and Kate as well, we're all very good with you know, let's developing scripts with writers that are going to stand out as a really great sample and a kind of a calling card and uh, get people to want to read it and get executives to want to meet with the writer. It's not about the sale, though. That's the thing. If you if you go into the whole, you know, the the process of we got to just got to sell, 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 right for the market, right for the market, then a lot of times those scripts don't end up getting on the blacklist. If you're thinking about the market, you're thinking about the the consumer audience. Um, the script's probably not, not going to get on the, in the blacklist. But if you're thinking about the industry audience, the people here, and you're and you're not worried about selling it, and you're just worried, you're just all your concern is write something that's fun, that's exciting, that's new, that's bold. That's when people, that's when you get on the blacklist. That's the formula, in my opinion, is is to follow that uh, kind of guide, you know, that kind of direction to get on there. And you had mentioned that developing an idea with a client and something out of the ordinary, something unique, something that is targeted, again, for the industry audience and not necessarily the commercial audience as something that you encourage. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, when you sign a new client, let's say, what are some of the first things you do other than obviously reading the material, their material and seeing, uh, in, reading other things that they've read? Because obviously if you meet with them and you've read a couple of pieces of theirs and, and you decide you want to sign them and they sign with you, you'll read the rest of their material, whatever they have. What are the next steps for you as a manager? Like, what would you do? And for the the client, for your writer, what are the next steps that they normally take? The, the first order of business when, when you sign it, when as a manager who's just signed a new client, the first order of business is what piece of material are we going to lead with and it's going to be one of three things it's going to be something old that they've written that's ready to go that hasn't been exposed something old they've written that's not ready to go that needs development which we'll develop together and then take it out or it's something new and, and you have to figure that out first that's the first order of business figuring one of which of those three it's going to be um, if it's something old that needs to be developed or something new then there's a development process that's that's involved and um, and you know we that process takes some time actually when it comes to if, if the idea is to develop something from scratch new it's going to be several you know at least several weeks but it, it's more often than not several months before that piece of material is ready once that material is ready whether it's you know something old that's ready to go something old that needed to be developed but was developed or something new that you we create with the writer then then the, the next question is uh do they already have an agent? If they do, you got to bring the material to the agent. They're going to agents most likely going to have some notes and some feedback for the script. And then my job as the manager is to 
huddle with the writer and kind of help the writer uh, integrate the um, implement, I'm sorry, the, the agent's notes and get it to a place where the agent's happy to take it out. If they don't, if they don't already have an agent, then, then the, my job would be to go to agents, send them the script, see if agents want to come on board the team. Um, and if they do, great. Um, we take the material out to producers um, agents spearheading that usually spearheading that, um, process. Uh, I will also kind of make some, some submissions as well. I, I know a lot of producers and I'll, I always want to help out and not just kind of put the whole, you know, um, the workload on the agent. Um, and if for whatever reason we can't find, they don't have an agent, we can't get them when we try, but fail to get them one. Then of course I will make submissions to producers. And the goal is just with, with or without agent help, agency help. The goal really uh, when the script is ready, that first piece that we're going to lead with, it's getting it out as far and wide as possible and getting the writers as many general meetings as possible. Um, the more people you send the script to, the more likely it is it'll end up on the blacklist or the blood list or the young and hungry list or the hit list, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's figuring out what you're going to lead with. And once that script is polished, ready, everyone's happy with it. It's as good as we feel it can be. It's getting it out as wide as possible. And it's typically start that starts with producers. And if producers like it, they will inevitably pass it on to it'll get it'll kind of start to permeate the town and it'll it'll go out to it'll get to studios and networks executives but we start with producers they're kind of producers are kind of like the tastemakers of the town so we go out to 20 30 40 producers and and if it if it they like it it's going to get it's kind of going to go viral so to speak it's going to get passed around and it'll eventually get get into eight uh, studios studios and networks and those executives will read it and we'll get incoming calls and the writer will go out on general meetings and um and yeah that's it and then as soon as that kind of live run its course that project's run its course there's no more um you know interest in the script no more general meeting requests we move right on to the next thing it's right on to the next script and you just got to keep doing that until one of them sells and and then you keep doing that until one of them gets produced and so on and so forth you had mentioned that uh, if the writer doesn't end up signing with an agent and you'll use your the relationships to send it out to producers you know and are friendly with and uh, have a relationship with, how valuable is it for uh, a prospective client or a new client, I guess, in this situation, to already have sort of a built-in network? Perhaps they've had representation before and had relationships. Perhaps they've worked in the industry somewhere else as an assistant or in development somewhere. How valuable is it for a writer to have their own network and is that but does that make a client more appealing if they have a wide network uh, of industry contacts already if the writer has a, a, a network of industry contacts it definitely makes them more appealing to us um as managers and i think that would the same would probably go to agents it's always helpful that they've got got fans their fan base is already built so it's one thing less that we have to do so yes it's definitely up more appealing when when we meet with a potential client and they're like you know i've got fans at this studio and fans at this network and this production and i have i know people at this production company and that production company definitely makes them more appealing uh it's not it's not absolutely necessary to have that if a writer if we love a script and the writer we, we bellevue in particular is definitely specializes in breaking uh new writers we sign a lot of people that have you know come out of uh you know screenwriting or film school and who have don't have any contacts or, you know, and we're more than happy to, to do that and help build, you know, get them out and introduce those people to the town. If they have it, if they have the contacts already, great. It's always a plus and it's nice, but it's by no means, uh, you know, a prerequisite by to, for us to sign them. But yeah, it's always nice for them to do that and, you know, and, and to use those contacts. I think, I think when it comes to TV writers, it, TV is a very, um, interconnected social kind of network and and when we're when we're meeting people potential tv writers the more contacts they have of their own the more appealing and attractive they are to us but of course at the end of the day the writing is the most writing is the most important thing and then personality second is, is there is up there at the same place and then uh, if, if those two things are there we're more than happy to if they don't have any contacts we're more than happy to to create those contacts basically you know introduce them to the town um, you know, build the fan base, build, help them build the fan base. So it's like I said, it's, we, we definitely more attractive and we're, we love that, but not a huge part of, it's not a big factor in whether we want to sign someone or not. It right. helps for sure if they already have their own contacts, but it's not the biggest thing. It's really, it's really the execution. Can they write great characters, great dialogue, coming up with great unique ideas and are, and how are they in the room with people? That's the, those are the most important things.
Right. And I know it's going to vary wildly, but maybe instead of giving maybe a specific time frame, maybe an estimation or sort of an average of the time that when you sign a writer and you maybe go out with something, obviously you would mention sometimes it takes months to get something developed if they don't have something you both agree on that's ready to go out. But once that thing, whatever it is, a feature, a, a pilot, whatever, to go out, what is generally, and I, I hate to ask you this question, but maybe if you elaborate, maybe you can just sort of uh, give us a random assortment of examples uh, of time between sending out their first script for the first time before, so they can start taking generals and other types of meetings by the time they actually will sort of book a job or be in that prime position to be booking a job, whether it's staffing, whether it's a spec sale, whether it's an OWA or something like that. And again, I, I know it's such a wide variety of, of, of time frames because it's it's an individual situation. I mean, no writer is probably the same. Yeah. But maybe you can give me a couple examples of 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 like what an, a time frame would look like for a different kind of writer. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you as you could imagine, it's it's different. It's a case by case basis. You, I think there's the on the on the shorter end of the spectrum, on the fast end of the spectrum. Um, it's from the time, I think, just to use as an example, earlier I mentioned my client, Nicholas Curcio, who wrote the Baron Trump spec, which was on the blacklist in 2019. Um, he's someone I met with him in, um, you know, January of 2019. And we talked about, you know, we, we started working together in January 2019. And that, that Trump idea was, you know, came up in probably February of 2019. And we took this, he wrote the script and we took it out in October 2019 and it was and it was on the blacklist in december of 2019 and then um january of 2020 one uh, about approximately one year from when we first sat down for the first time together he was able to quit his day job and he got his first uh feature writing assignment um and that was you know you know he by the way getting on the blacklist he got signed by upa he got like somewhere in the around between like 40 and 50 general meetings. In fact, the general meetings are still happening to this day. Um, and he got his first feature writing gig at a major studio, which got him, you know, allowed him to quit his job. So one year, that's about, that's about kind of on the fast, fast way. That's the fastest I've kind of seen it happen. I would say um, six to 12 months is the fast on the fast range from going from like signing with the manager to you have an agent, you're on the blacklist, you're taking generals all over town, and then you get your first paid job. Six to six months is, would be the, probably the fastest it's ever happened. Six to 12 months is also pretty fast. With Nick, it was about 12 months total. Um, I, have, I have other clients with the first script that we take out doesn't ha have as much success as that, builds the fan base, but maybe doesn't fall short of getting on the blacklist, falls short of, of a sale, but we get it, but, you know, builds the fan base, and we have to go back to the drawing board, develop that second script, and then the second script's the one that sells or gets on the blacklist or, or helps them get the, you know, get, get them their first paid gig. And in some cases I've had it with a third, it was a third script. So, you know, and, and by the way, it's, it's not uncommon for the first script to build the fan base, the second script to, to like net the writer and agent or agents and also get some exposure, like get on the blacklist, but still not sell. And then the third one, kind of the third one's the charm. Boom. That's their big sale. That's like kind of kicked open the doors. Now they're getting paid. So it can be, it's, it's usually, you know, one to three years, I think, is the average range. It can take time. It's, you know, it's a hard business and it doesn't always happen on the first one. So that, that's, I think, the range. I think, I think it's the, it's, and really it's the scripts. It's like one to three scripts is really what it is. It's, you know, um, it's a, if they write them quickly and they don't have a day job, then you could probably, if you could turn around three scripts in a year and a half, then maybe the third one's the one that really finally gets them that first paid gig. But the first one and the second one, they served a purpose. You know, you've got to build a fan base. You've got to get out there and take general meetings. You've got to, you know, get agents. You've got to vet, get vetted by the industry. And sometimes it takes a few scripts before you kind of pop. Um, other, some writers get, you know, just pop the first one you're out, out of the gate with and it pops and everything comes together. But, um, you know, it's different for everybody. That was, that's the range, probably six months to, to two years. is probably like where they, a writer should expect 
the, the how fast those things to happen you know and i and i'd say it's more likely it's more often than not it's the, on the longer end of that it takes a lot of time to really you know get to that place where the you know incoming calls are coming in and you're getting off you know writer you're a writer you're getting offers and you're getting paid so two or three years uh, sometimes and it's fellowship season now how attractive is someone from a fellowship who has gone into a fellowship and graduated from a fellowship even if they haven't because it's you're not guaranteed to get on a series although a, a good probably majority do but how attractive is a fellowship and and would you recommend that the newer writers out there especially ones who may not be local um do you recommend that that newer writers uh, submit to these festival uh, fellowships excuse me uh yes uh, absolutely i would say I, I i this is basically the way i look at it is when you're a, a writer uh you you've never had any rep type of representation you've never sold anything or been hired to write anything you're kind of starting out in the business you you know you managers are just the the the, the bottom kind of the floor uh of the of the threshold of where they're looking where they're scouting is is the winners of festivals and competitions so you write a script and it's it's in the top places and the skits in the semifinals of the or the finals of the nickel fellowship or final draft big break or Austin Film Festival or you get into the Sundance um, you know Writers Lab or the Blacklist Writers Lab the people that are getting placing and winning and or and or getting into the labs that's where managers is like kind of the ground floor of where we're starting to sniff around and scout um, we we sign out of those pools the 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 top of the of the general population pool is the people that are, you know, placing and winning and getting accepted into those programs. Then we sign them out of there, develop with them for a couple of years, um, you know, get them, get them agents, get them on the black, on these lists, get them uh, their first sale, et cetera, get them staffed. And then agents are, you know, kind of looking, agents are tend to be looking at that a little hot further up the, the, uh, you know, a little further out into the future. So it's like, we're, sniffing around at like a at like a three or four that's where managers are kind of looking at for clients people cl writers that have gotten them themselves to a three or four and have been vetted by those you know uh, types of um you know institutions like uh, fellowships um competitions and then we help them get to like a six or a seven and that's where the six or seven that's the place where agents are kind of sniffing around and scouting and then that we then you you put the you bring an agent on the team and then we try to you know together helping the client push all the way up to the 10 top of the list the nine and ten that's where the studios are are hiring from at the very top so it's like you got to get yourself to a three or four to get discovered by a manager and then the manager and and the writer have to work together really hard to get to that five or six or seven to get discovered by the agents and then with agent manager and the writer work really hard to push really hard all the way to the top and then the writer gets to that nine or 10 and that's where a studio or a major studio or network is kind of going to say this, this guy or girl, this is who we want to write this feature or who we want to adapt this book or staff on the show. And that's kind of, I know that's like a, it's, it's a weird way. It's hard to quantify that, but it's, generally speaking, that's kind of what it is. So yes, yeah, those, anytime we, we, uh, you know, a, a writer reaches out to us, if they say, Oh, I might script was a finalist at the Austin film festival and I won this competition and I, and I, I'm just got accepted into this fellowship or that fellowship a hundred percent. That's what we're looking for. We want that. Those are, if we get a hundred, um, you know, unsolicited queries in a day, the three that the our writer say, I was in, I mean, I just got accepted into the Sundance. I was a finalist or a, I placed or won in one of these fellowships or contests. Boom. We'll read those five of the hundred that came in. We'll take a look at those five scripts. Um, and, um, um, and, and as far as the TV fellowships go, absolutely, those are they're, the TV fellowships are extremely effective when it comes to helping writers get staffed for the first time. I've had several clients get staffed out of a fellowship. Those are there's maybe maybe there's there's only a few other ways to get staff for the first time, and the most effective is probably the fellowships. You know, the NBC Writers on the Verge, uh, Disney, ABC. Those are the most effective ways to get staffed. Other than that, it's really just, you know, working in a room as an assistant and just kind of being promoted from within. You're a writer's room assistant or showrunner's assistant. You get promoted from within. That and the fellowships are the two most likely ways to get staffed for the first time. So that's why, um, you know, when we hear people are, someone reaches out to us, oh, this this writer's in the, just graduated from Writers on the Verge or is currently a fellow in ABC Disney. 
we're, 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 we're going to read, prioritize that as a potential client read for sure. Oh, so if, if somebody actually is in a fellowship currently, that's still something that you would consider. Oh, absolutely. We get, they reach out, you know, they have, they have coordinators who reach out to us to management companies and say, Hey, we have uh, the, the graduating class of writers, you know, writers on the verge here, the, here are the writers here, their, their log lines, their bios, their scripts. Um, we're very interested in those writers because they, you know, the fellowships work hard to try to get them staffed and just helps us, you know, get them staffed, which is great. So yeah, we definitely fellowships, competitions. That's the first, you know, if I, if I'm if, if a piece of advice to writers who are listening is not to reach out directly to management companies and agencies, but to reach out to the Sundance Institute, the, you know, uh, uh put your script into the, onto the blacklist website, put it onto the, um, into the, enter into the nickel competition. The final draft big break is a fantastic, um, you know, competition. And then there's Austin Film Festival does a pretty great one. And there's, and there's more than that. Um, you know, enter into one of those and, and place or win in one of those. And you're, you're almost guaranteed to get, you know, have representatives reach most likely managers, uh, reach out to you, you know, to, to want to meet you. Um, it's better to do it that way than just to reach out and say, Hey, I've, I've never had anything placed or win anything. I've never had anyone else like kind of, you know, um, validate any of my writing, but I just have a great log line. Here it is. I mean, we're getting hundreds of those a week. So it, to stand out from that group and to actually have us, you know, engage and, and request one of the scripts, it's got to, I think vetting is, is essential. And how about if they were a quarter finalist in the Poughkeepsie international screenplay competition does that move the needle at all uh, uh, you know there's so many of them out there i think i think the ones i just named off and and then there's probably a couple of them that i may have forgotten you got it's got to be something substantial out of yeah it's going to be it's going to be like for the fellowship it's going to be one of the major studio or network fellowships tv fellowships uh, or feature fellowships like universal writers fellowship it's going to be one of the big studios uh it's going to be sundance it's going to be you know i don't know the Cannes film festival or toronto film Fe- international film Fe- it's going to be something backed by one of those places if for competitions it's it's going to be you know nickel's probably number one and then you've got the blacklist website and then you've got uh final draft big break um you've got um the Austin Film Festival screenwriting competition, or uh, you've got, you know, there's the tracking board and tracking B, which are two uh, industry-based tracking boards that have competitions. It's going to be, there's like, you know, 15 that, that are, that kind of carries any weight. Uh, after that, if it's like the Poughkeepsie International or the Rhode Island International, or the Martha's Vineyard, like, you know, people right. just kind of, it doesn't have any, there's just, there's too many of them. There's just a million of them. So they, Lose, but it's going to be probably in the top 15 or 20 uh, well-known um, vetting outlets. I would call them. Um, that's what you got to really, and you got to you got to definitely be in that top like 10% of those. You know, the nickel. I, I I personally take a look at like the top. You know, the finalists in the nickel, the finalists and winners. You know, semifinalists. There's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of them. There's just a, a quarter finalists. Forget about it. Thousands. You know, it's just one of those things. You've got to. You've got to get vetted first, um, but um, but yeah, I would say I would say those look look some people. I think it's better than nothing if someone reaches out to me and says I I my screenplay won awards in these five festivals and they're kind of obscure festivals or small festivals. I don't know. It's better than nothing, I guess, but it's not going to move the needle as much as like you know saying like I you know was a finalist in the Austin Film Festival, final draft, big break, and in uh, the semifinals or finalist in the Nickel. Those are what the ones you really want to kind of aim for. And other than cold queries, which I'm sure you get a lot of, everyone knows the best way to get read is through a referral, which generally means somebody within the industry, whether you know them through a relationship or at least you know of them, even if you don't have a relationship with them per se, recommending a writer to you saying you should take a look at this person, their work is great, or I really like them or whatever it happens to be. But what else constitutes a referral for example if a student got their professor at usc film school you know the screenwriting teacher to shoot you an email does that move the needle at all or i mean i'm trying to think what else could be used as a referral that's more accessible to the average writer than you know the vice president of production at fox for example 
Yeah, I mean, referrals referrals is a, is a is a type of betting. So it's like you know, if, if something you know placed or won one of those competitions, it's it's the it's the same as if a studio executive or a agent or production company executive you know calls us and says, "Hey, we got this read this script. It's it's fantastic. You know, we're we're attached to produce it or whatever." But the writer doesn't have a manager, so vetting is is definitely um, you know also works in the form of referrals. Um, I don't, yeah, I, if it's, it's gotta, it's gotta be a genuine referral. So it's gotta be the referrals for us as managers are, it's gonna be attorneys, entertainment attorneys, agents, um, executives at production companies and studios, um, you know, so, reaching out to us. Sometimes our, our own clients will call us too and say, hey, I have a friend who's you know, went to school with, film school with, and he wrote this great script. Um, that those are those are definitely going to go to the top of our when we're when we're prioritizing our potential client what potential clients read, you know the very top is going to be people that came recommended and referred by, you know, business associates and and friends, um, and as well as stuff that's won scripts that have placed or won in competitions. That stuff goes to the top. The the less refer if you if you, and by the way if you got both of those things then even better. If you placed or won in something, and then we're getting a call from someone who we trust and know who works in the business, that really goes to the top of the pile. Um, but I think uh, professors at school, it just depends. I mean, if it's a you know if it's a major, if it's like the uh, professor at a screenwriting you know a screenwriting professor at a major university, then yeah, that would be nice. You know, just like with the festivals, when you you know it, there's a there's kind of a hierarchy, and at the bottom of it, it, it starts to lose its effect. Yeah, if their if their cousin reaches out or their mom reaches out or their entertainment attorney, their attorney, but it's like an, some someone from outside business that works in another state saying, "Hey, I represent this." It's not going to really carry any weight. It's going to be someone who we you know works here, lives and works here in LA, who's part of the business and preferably someone we know, but it can sometimes be someone we don't know reaching out, but someone who can quickly kind of you know corroborate is a part of the business, works here, and then absolutely it's going to bump up a few notches on our reading pile. Can you maybe give us a number? Like how many queries would you say you get on an average month cold queries? And how many scripts do you think you read on any average month, including your own client scripts? You said how many queries, like unsolicited query emails do we get a month? Yeah, on, on average. Just no, rough yeah, guess. It's hard to say. There, I would probably say we get... I probably get on average five a day. So that's 25 a week. So that's a uh, hundred a month. Mm-hmm. I would say that's probably a good average. There, there's times where there's upticks. For for example, when you, when you do a podcast like this one, sometimes when those go out um, and I've done numerous podcasts and interviews, the week following that you get a lot of, there's an uptick. And, and sometimes when you, have, you get in the trade, my, my colleague John and I were featured in a variety article a few years ago and we got, you know, inundated after that. Also after working rule 23 went into effect and tens of thousands of writers had to fire their agents and some of them didn't have already have managers. So we had a huge uptick after that. Um, I would, but I would say, yeah, probably a hundred a month is a good average, you know, hundred emails that were just, someone's just reaching out cold saying, this is the log line. I know you're looking. Yeah, that's, that's a good number, I think. And what was the other, you, you had asked another question. And, and well, I mean, I guess that would lead to another segue is if you get about a hundred plus queries a month on average, how many of those do you think you'd request? A script for oh out of out of oh out of that hundred out of that hundred a month oh man so few probably like oh, probably like maybe out of the hundred a month I would say somewhere between one, one to five probably I don't that no, I would no. actually read the thing and and actually you know five would be the at the most that's a lot for in one month to like request I would probably say it's probably closer to like one to three on average where I might see something in the in there in the email the, the log line stood out to me. They, their bio stood out to me. They, you know, again, a lot of times it has to do with a combination between a log line that, that I find really unique or fascinating or interesting or compelling coupled with within the, their bio. It also talks about something like, uh, you know, placed or wanted a competition was in, a, was in a fellowship recently, had something produced, had a movie produced. It was staffed in a show. It's a little bit of a combination of those things. I have in the past simply engaged and and requested a script just based off the log line um and then and i've ended up signing those writers and and selling their the spec that 
we engaged on the, the, that very spec that we that he that they sent me which we did, then developed and took out um so it, it has happened you know there is a couple you know i'd say you know maybe two or three times a year you might you know sign someone off of that it started from just an unsolicited query um but it's you know it's rare they they really have to the idea really has to stand out and and also it's the who are they as a person and their bio and and then we have to like the script then we have to meet them and like them in person um so it's it's you know i'd say like maybe one or two a month that i might request to read the script so assuming you read a couple how many scripts would you say you read on an average month it includes the one or two or three whatever uh cold query scripts that you get in you know unsolicited the whatever comes in via referral from agents or executives lawyers clients whatever and also what your clients are asking you to read what you're developing with your clients uh scripts they turn in you know things like that and scripts that you have to read for work otherwise like potential job you know things or whatever what how many scripts do you think you read on average a month Oof, that's a really hard question because i read so much I, I, at any given time i'm reading revi- revi- scripts that have that it's like a, a new draft of a script and i'm reading the marked revisions right so it's like that's not really a full you know cover to cover new draft i'm also reading a lot of beat sheets idea lists outlines treatments full scripts from beginning to end and scripts where you know 50% of it's changed, 25% sure. changed, 15, 5%. It's just, it's such a huge mix that it's so hard to quantify that. But I, you know, on, on, I do a lot of my readings on the weekends. And I would say like, if I have, I probably, if, if, you know, I probably read the equivalent of about five scripts of lots of different, that miscellaneous grouping of different materials. I'm, ne- I'm never just, have like five full scripts to read over a weekend. It's always like a revised script, an outline, a beat sheet. Um, but you know, probably four to five scripts. Uh, I'll, I'll allot that amount of time to read four or five scripts over the weekend. Um, it was before I, you know, I have a three-year-old daughter. Before that, it was a lot more. But now it's, you know, as you have kids, then sure. you know, cuts into that time. But, but it's yeah. So I would say like four to five scripts, just sitting down and reading cover to cover. Um, it, but that's rarely the case. It's usually like just a big kind of mismatch of all kinds of different stuff um and uh sometimes books as well of course right no and i just kind of wanted to give an idea of sort of the workload they're asking you to read their script which in and of itself if that's all you had to do may not be too big of a time commitment you know whether you're reading the first 10 pages and it takes 10 15 minutes or you're reading a whole thing and it takes an hour hour and a half but you times that times if you did that for everybody that sent you a log line that's 100 scripts right there or even if you cut it down to a smaller percentage, 20, that's 20 scripts a month, right? That you'd have to give up your time to read, which if you've just mentioned, you read probably an uh, an amalgam of different things, but on average, maybe five scripts a week on the weekends, you've just doubled your reading workload by taking 20 scripts instead of one or two, right? Yeah, I mean, I've, there's been, there, you know, every weekend's different. Every, you know, week or weekend is completely different when it comes to what my re- reading load, the makeup of my reading load some weekends. It's all client stuff. Sometimes it's potential client reading. Sometimes it's a 50-50 split. Potential client reading, it all depends on how how far into the script you have to read before you pass. So I've had times where I've you know, read, you know, 10 potential client scripts and read, you know, 20 pages in, pass, move on to the next one, pass, move on to the next one. If you get to one and if if you pass on all of them, then you can get through a lot. You can get, if you're only reading 25, 30 pages, sure. you could pass uh, pretty quickly, but then, it, then every once in a while you get one that you like and it, and it, it just naturally engages you and compels you to read all the way through. And then suddenly the, the whole day's gone by and you didn't have time to read the other ones. Um, we just kind of, you know, we just read until we are no longer, we've made a decision. Uh, you know, we try sometimes you'll get to page 15 and 30 and you know and you've made your decision you're passing um so it's just a crapshoot on that uh you know if if uh you're if you if you get a lot of bad scripts then you know you're going to get through a lot of them in one day um but if you hit one that's really good the other ones are just going to have to be pushed to the to the next day or the next weekend and you just have to you know which is a good problem to have because you just read something you really liked and you want to engage on so right we've got a couple listener questions i want to run by you Sure. Um, the first, Tony asked, 
what does an ideal writer prospect look like to you coming in for representation? It starts with the with the the writing itself. It starts with the sample. It's you know number one character ability to write great and characters. Uh, you know dimensional, complex, uh, believable characters. Uh, that's number one for me. Is you know is for me number one. It's, it's execution um, and that the, within the umbrella under the umbrella of execution, it's character and dialogue probably first and foremost. And then after that, it's, it's you know, um, plot, plotting and, ex- and structure. And then after that, it's concept originality. What kind of ideas? The, let me see a list of 15 ideas that they have. Um, and, and also just voice and prose. The voice and prose, you know, the strength of the writing itself. Um, that's number one is execution. After execution is personality. Um, that's the, the next biggest um, factor. So if I'm if I'm excited about the execution, I want to meet the writer, and then in the when I meet them in the room, or I guess now in the post COVID nineteen world, and on a Zoom meeting or in a video meeting, um, it's personality is a big part of the equation because it's a it's it, it, it's a big part of getting an open writing assignment or getting staff on a TV show. So personality is definitely second, and then I think if the, the third place is probably you know, is, is some of the more kind of superficial things like, do they live in Los Angeles? Uh, are they, you know, have they had any, you know, past, what is, do they have a network of pre-existing fan base or network of contacts? Like we talked about earlier, you know, I think the first two things are the, really the most important. I don't worry too much, but we do, we do factor in, you know, whether you live here, if you do live in LA, that's a plus. If you don't, there's always that question of why. Um, we do have, we do. Have, I, I personally manage writers who live outside of Los Angeles in different states and, and in, in the past different countries. But it's really a question of why and uh, um, and then do they have their own? Have they do they have any sales history or you know have they sold anything in the past? It's always nice when they live in LA. They've got a fan base already. They've already sold a couple of things. Of course, we like that. But really, the most important thing is just execution. It's it's character and dialogue first and foremost. And then everything else kind of comes after that. That's really what I'm looking for and, um, in a writer. And then personality. You want someone with a good personality, somebody who's, uh, you know, listen, is like fun to work with, is down to earth, is listens to notes, um, you know, is, uh, you know, considers everything you say and uh, gives it a fair shake, et cetera. And, you know, it's, makes good eye, eye contact. You know, there's a lot of things that fall under that. We, we, I think as managers, uh, at least speaking for myself, uh, we probably the least, um, you know, we, we could, we contribute the least to our clients' personalities. That's the one thing that's like the hardest to like change. It's kind of like either it's there or it's not, um, you know, so it's really for us, we can help them elevate their game on concept and we can help elevate their, their game when it comes to execution personality. I'd say it's mostly baked in by the time we, we meet them. It's there, it's not. Um, so we're not going to really be changing that. Um, we're looking for, you know, people that can, you know, get in a room and engage with others. And, you know, pitching, by the way, pitching is, is a huge social sport. Um, when you take out a feature or TV pitch, getting in front of a room of people, we, we've found that people with acting backgrounds have the most success with pitching because they can really, you know, dramatize and just kind of, uh, you know, project and get up on a table and you know that's what people want they want a performance at those pitch meetings it helps sell the project so we do like that you don't it's not necessary to have that um but it's always a plus Mm -hmm. and springboarding off of that you had mentioned in in the time of coronavirus is it a good time for newer writers to seek out representation like is it a good time for writers to query Mm. jeff portnoy or is it it's it's a suboptimal time. It's not, uh, it's not ideal because right now if I read a script that I like, I can't meet the writer in person. So we're going to have to meet on a zoom meeting. I've already had a, several zoom or Skype meetings with uh, potential clients. It's not ideal. I, I, you know, but it's better than nothing. And, and I, and I will, you know, I will still consider a lot. Most managers I think are still considering and reading potential clients and, and we'll meet them on video. And then once this is over, we'll meet them in person. So it's not, not a great time, but it's not a, you know, not uh, also, it's not impossible either. Uh, right. You know, so like I said, most of, most of one of the biggest factors is the, is, is the proof in the pudding is the writing itself, which is something that can be done remotely. 
Um, but the meeting is the personality part, and it is a little harder these days to get a good, you know, to judge someone's personality from just being on a video thing. You really want to get in the room with them. So it's it's not ideal, but it's still happening. Um, so yeah, if, if if they're okay waiting, and this is only going to be a couple more months, then I would suggest they wait. If a writer is thinking about trying to send out their material right now, and uh, you know, and they're if they're if they're willing to wait, then definitely wait. Um, if it's only going to be another couple of months, if this goes on indefinitely for a year, then I guess there's no choice, but you just got to get out and do the video meetings. Right. Gustavo from Caracas, Venezuela asked, uh, do you consider that there's a problem with Hollywood and how they work with nostalgia? And I think it's referring to, um, or in how that affects original ideas, he goes on to say. And I think he's talking about like remakes and reboots and sequels, previous IPs, things like that. Yeah, I think I think that the the trend of um, the re remake reboot trend started a long time ago, um, and it's just gained momentum every year uh, since it began. And um, it's gotten it's kind of re I don't know if it's if we've reached the apex yet or if we're close to the apex or past the apex. We're definitely somewhere near the apex of it. It, it, it the the I think the the reasoning behind it is because. Um, you know, throughout the last 20 years, there's been a lot of uh, conglomeration of companies where, you know, two com- you know, the most recent example is Disney buying Fox. And then in a couple of years from now, they might buy another studio. They might buy Lionsgate. And then they're, the, as they as these these companies conglomerate and they get more, they become more corporate. There's a, a bigger corporate structure and the more corporate they become, the more risk averse they become and the more risk averse they become the more likely they would, if they, if they could choose between greenlighting two projects and one of them has a built-in fan base via, vis-a-vis the nostalgia of an old pre-existing uh, uh, you know, piece of material or movie, and the other one is completely original, there's, there's a, a sense, I think, you know, that you'll, you'll just do a, the, the movie that's a remake or reboot will just do a little bit better because there's some, someone, some, an older generation somewhere out there who kind of will see the, the trailer or the poster or the billboard and go, I fucking remember that when I was, I love that. I remember that man. And, and they'll, they'll go out and to, and to go see it in addition to the younger audience, which drives the entire market, who's going to see it for the first time. So it's like, if you're in a studio green light committee and an original script is a project is put before you and another script is put you for you, which is a remake of an old title, an old hit movie that you made in the eighties, seventies, sixties, fifties, whatever, you know, if they're only going to, if they only have it in the budget to make one, it's all, almost always going to break toward the remake because the way they, the way they figure it is we'll, we'll get two different audiences that might come to this. I think, um, you know, just recently they just um, released that movie, a horror movie, Fantasy Island, which was uh, like a kind of a reimagining of that old hit uh, TV show, Fantasy Island. And, um, and it, and the movie was like completely different tone and than the, than the TV series. But it, it was almost like you, you could almost, it's almost like you could tell you were like, you could, you could imagine being in the room when it was greenlit where someone said, Hey, let's, if we're going to make, if you're going to, we're going to make a horror greenlight, a horror movie, why don't we grab an old piece of IP and just kind of stick it on, you know, you know, base it on the old piece of IP. And then somewhere, someone somewhere is going to see that and remember that old show they liked and think that's kind of cool. I want to go check that out. So it's a, it's a risk mitigation, um, you know, kind of, that's what's, that's what drives that kind of trend. I think, um, you know, by the way, some, some remakes are just straight, straight up. That would make it, that was done back when it was, the original movie was made. They didn't have the technology that we do now and we can make it do an even better job now. So there are some remakes where they are warranted and they, and they, and they do make sense. There's other ones where straight, simply put, it's a corporate risk mitigation and so that's what's behind that that trend, and it's as as long as the conglomerations continue to get bigger and bigger, and and they keep eating up the smaller companies, and then they get more corporate and more corporate, you'll just see that and continue. It's not going to end. That's what we've seen it with television. You know, all these giant um, streamers—they're all owned by these big conglomerations, and they're remaking everything. They're going to, you know, they're going through their IP piles. They're not taking on original material as often. Um, and it's a shame, but it just is the way it is. It's they, they finance production of these TV series and these movies. Therefore, they get to decide 
what risk they want to take for their money. And if they want to be take an original script and see if there's a piece of IP in their library that they can kind of slap on the title onto the new thing, just so that it, you know, just to mitigate a little risk, like was the case with Fantasy Island, then that'll happen. They'll do that. And that's their prerogative. And that's their, you know, right to do that. That's a great answer. Thanks for coming on the show today, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Um, I'd love to come back more frequently. It's always great to be here, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, and you're going to stick around for the uh, the unscripted after show for, for a bit? Sure. Cool. Sounds good. Be sure to follow Jeff on Twitter. It's at Jeff underscore Portnoy, P-O-R-T-N-O-Y. And follow Bellevue Productions at Bellevue, P-R-O-D-S, on Twitter. Uh, that's it for this time. Thanks again, Jeff. As always, it's great talking to you. And be sure to check out our entire library of interviews on scriptsandscribes.com. And remember, keep writing, and we'll see you next time.